Good evening. You are listening to Three Moves Ahead. I am your host for this week, Len, and I am joined today by Three Amaze Behind the Scenes Mastermind, Mike. Hello. And we are happy to welcome once again visiting lecturer in history at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, Dr. Brett Devereaux. Hey. Welcome happy back. To be here. We're, yeah. Glad to have you. Glad to have you on again. Um, tonight's topic uh, was planned well in advance of the <laughs> events of February and March of 2022. And I didn't expect it to be topical uh, because we're going to be talking about empires. I think we are going to avoid current events as much as possible, just because this is not a current events podcast. Um, but wait, I wanted wait. To... Is someone doing an imperialism? <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe just a little bit as a treat um but yeah the last episode uh that we had you on brett we talked about like the state and what is a state and how do strategy games um portray states and lead us to think about states uh in in some ways that are interesting in a good way and maybe in some ways that are counterproductive so i thought kind of the natural Evolution of that discussion would be to move on to uh, empires and imperialism, uh, which often is kind of like the next stage. If you're playing a grand strategy game, um, you know, you might you might form a state or a nation and then go on to form an empire. Um, before we get into that, for anybody who's not already familiar with you, maybe you didn't hear the last episode you were on. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about what you do on your blog? Uh, yeah, so the so general story. So one, I am a, a you know trained PhD having his ancient historian. I study the Romans, and then I also blog at a collection of unmitigated pedantry, uh, acoup.blog, acoup.blog, where I do a mix of um, uh, ancient history, military history, and popular culture, including gaming, which I, I game a fair bit. Right. And uh, a lot of a lot of these discussions have been inspired by uh, sort of the paradox blog posts you've done on there about uh, EU4 and Victoria, which I would highly recommend people go check out if you haven't yet. Um, but I'll start this episode sort of the same way we started the last one, which is just from your perspective as an academic and as a historian, what exactly are we talking about when we talk about empires? Right. And this is one of these empires and imperialism is one of those terms that has a sort of broad common usage and then a precise technical usage. And you always want to be clear as to which one you're playing with. The sort of narrow technical usage is generally that an empire is a state in which one group of people, the core of the state, dominates typically militarily other groups of people, the periphery, and extracts resources from them. That may be literally resources, as in the colonial empires of the, the early modern period, right? Sort of British Empire, the French Empire, where they were literally extracting the raw resources, the you know sugar cane and tobacco and and cotton and opium, lots of opium, um, or it could be extracting it in the form of taxes, an empire that. Um, taxes the periphery to pay for the core to have nice things. This is how the Roman Empire worked, for instance. The Romans conquered the provinces to tax the provinces so that they didn't have to tax themselves to have nice things. Um, and that's sort of the narrow definition of, of empire. I think these days, um, there are still some empires like that, to be sure. Um, 
you know, these days we see states in positions of tremendous power that don't necessarily formulate that power in the form of raw, direct territorial control. And that's where you get the sort of fuzzy extensions of the idea of empire. Conveniently, when talking about video games, most video game empires uh, fit squarely in the narrow technical definition, right? You're conquering your neighbors and painting the map. And that's, yeah, that is empire. So, yeah, I'm, I'm curious as to if you have a very large state that like hypothetically treats everyone equally, um, I'm not sure that we could find an example of this that has actually existed in history. But when you're talking about a core population that is, you know, extracting something from the periphery so that the people living in the core can have nice things, um, would it be, you know, technically possible to have a very, very large state that is not actually an empire because it is not created for the purpose of, uh, you know, bringing all these resources into the center, but rather just governing a very wide area. So where you see that kind of formation, the term we occasionally use for it, at least it could bounce around in the discussion of ancient empires, is that an empire can become, quote, core-wide. That is, the initial imperial formation is exactly the process I've described where you gobble up your neighbors to extract resources from them. And usually, by the way, the thing you're doing with those resources is raising more armies. Um, the empire exists to feed its own military activity. Um, but then if you control that space uh, long enough, the people who live there can often come to identify with your state. You see this, for instance, this is how, uh, actually, this is how functionally all nation states emerge, um, right? If you look at something, you take like a prototypical nation state like France, if we rewind into the Middle Ages, huge parts of France don't consider themselves parts of France. You know, what happened? Well, the core, which is the area around Paris, conquered them um, or otherwise incorporated them into its, into its political system with degrees of violence, um, southern France in particular. Um, is subject to a pretty brutal crusade, um, the Albigensian Crusade. And then as we get into the early modern period as part of state building, um, the point is made to, you know, uh, schools are only going to teach Parisian French, the French language and culture is going to be regulated. And eventually we're going to kind of get everybody on the same page in a process that you can regard as uh, state building or... Um, cultural clearing um, or cultural genocide in some cases to create a, what we would call a core-wide empire. The core expands to the whole empire. Um, and you do see that in, in grander form historically. Um, the uh, Egypt forms this way. Um, China forms this way, um, which is which is why the ethnic identifier in in China is, is Han Chinese is the name of the first major dynasty, um, because it is the Han dynasty that forms a common Chinese culture to a significant degree over much of its territory, and then there's generally an argument among Roman historians as to if the Roman Empire ever quite makes it to this sort of core wide construction, um, because citizenship is extended in the reign of Caracalla to include everybody, all free persons in the empire. 
Um, and so to some degree, eventually, the Roman Empire also becomes this sort of core-wide state. What's striking is that that sort of, that sort of entity begins as, as an imperial foundation. You know, the, the other question is, could you just have a, um, a, a nice multi-ethnic sort of federal union where everybody just kinds of gets along? And, you know, by and large, when you scratch the surface on states that are like that, you often find that they're empires in disguise, right? The Soviet Union claimed to be this, a nice, happy family that was a big multi-ethnic federal union and like scratch the surface and you're like, huh, somehow almost all of the important government positions are held by ethnic Russians. <laughs> and the only language the government uses is Russian. And all of the resources flow out of places like Kazakhstan and into places like Russia. Uh, you know, and you realize, oh, this is just an empire in disguise. Um, so um, in some ways, I, I suppose I should note the United States in its like core territory is an oddity in this, um, in that it is a kind of weird polyglot multi-ethnic democracy, um, but a profoundly unusual state in its construction. Uh, as I've actually noted um, on the blog, you can search for um, why my country isn't a nation for just how weird the United States is as a state entity. Yeah, I think we talked a little bit about that maybe in the previous episode. I don't know if it was actually on the episode or maybe it was just something we were kind of uh, vamping about before we started recording. Um, but yeah, that is that's also a very interesting read. Uh, Mike, as somebody who plays a fair a uh, fair number of strategy games, do you can you think of one that was particularly um, interesting to you or maybe uh went against the grain in terms of how it portrays, you know, the concept of empire and imperialism. Well, I, uh, this is kind of a great setup because, um, well, thank the you. Thing <laughs> 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 well, it's just, it, it's hard to yeah. think of anything aside from Victoria too. Um, when we're talking about interesting ways of, uh, depicting how, uh, large sort of machinations of state works. And obviously that's in my mind because as part of the prep for this episode, I was, I was reading um, Brett's posts on, on Victoria too. But um, I think that uh, there's the really interesting sort of um, digging into what actually uh, is involved in, in the power projection of empires and also sort of the, I think there's a really interesting aspect of sort of the, and I guess Victoria too doesn't get into this, but the, the sort of myth building aspect of, of self-justification of, of imperial colonization and, and that sort of thing. Um, and, uh, I, yeah, I, I think that is definitely the most interesting, um, depiction that comes to mind when it comes to thinking about how how all of that stuff can click together and work as a system. Yeah, I, I, Victoria 2 and one hopes, Victoria 3, um, I think the great sort of triumph and this sort of blends into how it treats uh, empire and imperialism is that it simulates pops. And so when you conquer an area, the population doesn't immediately, if you're 
Austria, the population doesn't immediately become South German. Uh, they're still, you know, Hungarian or Slovene or Croat or what have you. They may kind of resent the fact that you're, you know, a completely different um, group of people dominating over them. Um, and then you have to make you have to make decisions because the game is set in the age of nationalism, which really brings in front of the player's eyes the degree to which for at least some of the major states, you are ruling these sort of unsteady multi-ethnic empires and you have to make choices in terms of how you're going to evolve those empires. One of the things I find incredibly fun playing Victoria 2 is that you can pick one of these multi-ethnic empires that historically um, was shattered by World War I and you can try and, and do better and transition it into something um, a little more federal um, something a, a little more free and fair, um, and you know maybe a little more humane. Whereas, of course, you know historically, um, the efforts of the Austrians, the Ottomans, and the Russians to sort of keep the thumb and, in many cases, the boot down on their subject populations um, was quite literally the death of them um, when it came to when it came to World War One. Yeah, it is kind of. It is sort of a thing where all roads kind of lead back to Victoria, uh, just because I think the fact that it models people uh, within a state on such a fine level makes it a much more um, interesting and nuanced depiction of of how this actually works than than most. Um, I've been following so a lot of the development stuff for Victoria 3, and it's interesting to me how... Um, they have sort of two forms of imperial discrimination that they're setting up where on one hand you can have this distinction between incorporated and unincorporated territories, which Victoria too had sort of something similar to this, uh, where based on where you live, you might not be getting the same services as someone else. Um, but then they're also adding uh, laws that actually introduce legal discrimination on the basis of heritage, where, you know, the, the actual heritage marker of a pop, uh, which might be, you know, different for, uh, you know, a European immigrant to America ver versus, you know, obviously, you know, someone who was brought here in captivity from Africa, um, you can have that as a like a separate form of discrimination. Um, and I'm curious in terms of um, how empires sort of split up who is getting the things and who is producing the things so other people can have more things. Uh, is that latter strategy, I suppose, more of a recent thing? Like, was it more geographic historically? And then the sort of heritage-based discrimination came along later, or have both of them always sort of coexisted? I think as, as long as we keep the word heritage um, and we don't bring in the word race, right, right. Um, I think it's fair to say that that's been around a long time. If you look at, for instance, um, the successor states uh, from the Empire of Alexander, so the Seleucid Empire, the uh, Ptolemaic Empire, the Antigonids in Macedon, um, et cetera, et cetera, though particularly the Seleucids and the Ptolemies, you see a, I think we would describe a heritage-based 
system of of discrimination and, and differential rights that it was clear that this was uh, these were kingdoms set up by and for um, ethnic Greeks and Macedonians over other peoples, Egyptians, Syrians, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the list of peoples in the Seleucid Empire would be here for a week. Um, and um, and we see that like ethnicity is a legal category which carries with it different rights and obligations to the point where it was often something of a pure fiction. There was, for instance, a legal Persian ethnicity in the Ptolemaic kingdom, despite the fact that there were no Persians in Ptolemaic Egypt. Um, it was simply the legal code they used for Egyptians that learned Greek and Hellenized, um, which put them somewhere above in status most of the Egyptian population, but still below in status, um, ethnic Greeks and Macedonians. And so you see a system like that um, was certainly a factor. Um, in other cases, citizenship becomes the dividing line. And then you have to ask, okay, well, how does the legal category of citizenship get transferred? Roman citizenship is remarkably, for the ancient world, expansionary, although comparing it to like modern American citizenship, you'd be like, wow, this is almost impossible to get. But for the ancient world, they were like, wow, this is really easy to get. Um, by contrast, right, Athens had an empire in the 400s, and you know the benefits of the empire went to Athenian citizens. And really, the only way to be an Athenian citizen was to have both a citizen father and a citizen mother. So it was a, a solidly exclusionary legal status that essentially created a hereditary body of Athenians that did not intermix in any way with anybody else. And those were the people that got the benefits and everybody else um, you know, had to pay the taxes. And so you, you do have systems like that all the way back into the ancient world. And certainly, as you might imagine, for empires that are extracting in this way and providing services, there's often a lot of concern about you know who gets extracted from and and who gets the services i think for some empires that is less important and typically where you'll see it's less important is where you'll have an empire where in practice the core isn't even the core ethnicity it is the ruling class alone and so if you look at something like the Russian Empire or or the Austro-Hungarian Empire, right? Your average Austrian or Russian peasant isn't really getting any of the benefits of empire themselves because the real core was the military aristocracy of the original state. And so not only heredity, but status distinctions um, within the state serve to determine, right, who gets extracted from and who gets extracted for. Did either of you play much uh, Imperator Rome, um, particularly with the later patches? Uh, I played it early, but not not after it got patched. Yeah, so one of the things that they did with some of the later patches, which was kind of interesting, and I'm curious if this has any historical precedent or if it's just purely a game design uh, decision for balance reasons. Um, but essentially what they, they ended up doing uh was you had you could have all these different cultured pops in your you know your classical empire and uh you could decide which ones were citizens and which were not and the way that they kind of put a check on 
oh, let's just give everybody universal citizenship, is that all of your current citizen cultures would get a little bit more discontent the more people you gave citizenship to, um, which obviously I can see the balancing logic behind that because, it, you know, I think it would be too overpowered if you could just give everybody citizenship and there was no uh, downside to that. But I'm, I, I was a little bit dubious, uh, even just as sort of like a, a his, history fan, that that would actually be the problem with, say, Rome just extending citizenship to everybody. I feel like it, it might be more economic factors would be the reason that, that an empire wouldn't want to do that. So funny story. But, <laughs> um, <laughs> that system is actually beautifully rendering the political disputes uh, from around 120 BC to very precisely 90 BC. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, so while Rome was still a republic, they're still a, you know voting on laws and electing officials. Um, obviously, you had the core, um, right? Rome's empire in the republic is a like multi-layered layer cake, the core of Roman citizens. But then you have the Italian allies who aren't really allies. They're, they're a subject people, but they serve in the army and they have better status in the empire than the provincials uh, do. The, um, the allies begin agitating for a variety of reasons in the late 100s for citizenship in the system. Uh, the benefits of citizenship have gone up. The benefits for being an ally have kind of gone down. Um, as a result of the changes in the way the system's functioning. Um, and one of the major political blockages um, in trying to get this done uh, is that uh, whenever anyone tries to do it, uh, their political opponents begin explaining to the Roman people, like, will you realize if, you know, you essentially double the number of citizens overnight, your votes are going to get washed out by all of these new people. And isn't that very bad? And I'm going to make that sound very sinister. Um, and as a result, um, there are several attempts between um, 123 and, and 90 to bring up the citizenship issue. And because it's increasingly clear that what does, in fact, need to happen in the end is that the Italians need to be admitted into citizenship or the system isn't going to work. And they fail politically because whoever the political opponents are of the person making the proposal um, simply make this exactly this point that, you know, won't the old Romans be terribly upset and so get the, get the measure kiboshed at the ballot box. What ends up happening is that um, after the failed effort of Marcus Livius Drusus the Younger in 91 um, to do this one last time, the allies finally lose it and about half of them just revolt. Um, triggering the social war. Uh, and it's only at that point with sort of um, the very real prospect of everything falling apart that the Romans finally do the thing they should have done 30 years earlier and extend general citizenship to, to the Italians. Um, and again, they only kind of do it at the at, at, at this moment of moment of crisis, the concerns were both political 
um, you know, people grumpy that, you know, the new the new new citizens would wash out the votes, dilute the votes of the old citizens. There was also increasingly an economic concern. It's not an accident that this is also the period where Roman politicians are beginning to use the proceeds of empire to fund what are essentially social programs. And do you really want those, you know, Tarentines and Capuans and, you know, <laughs> Etruscans um, to be able to get access to, you know, the, the cheap grain we're now getting as a service of the Roman state or the free military equipment that, um, you know, we're getting or, or what have you. Um, so, so that system actually, I think, is reflective of a sort of way that, that this kind of ex- system of exclusion can be among the core population politically popular. Those damn Tarentines, you know, they're always, always up to something. Um, Usually yeah. on horses. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, interestingly, that like the way that Victoria three seems to be handling this, you're talking about those social programs and that's sort of their their way of putting a check on this, that, you know, the more legal freedoms you give people, the more bureaucracy you're actually having to fund to make sure that they they have good things or else I guess you could just, you know, do sort of what you were talking about with the Russians where just, well, nobody has nice things because we don't have any social programs. So you can just extend uh, legal rights to a lot of people and it doesn't really matter as much. Um, so it's interesting to see how even within, you know, games from the same company, some of them model it as a discontent among the populace because they want to maintain this exclusionary status um, and others model it as it's going to be a great burden on the funds and the the ability of the state to govern to extend it uh, to more people. Um, Mike, I don't know, do you do you feel like either one of those approaches is more interesting to you or even, you know, better from a gameplay perspective? Well, what I was actually thinking about was that I, I got sort of fixated on on this this uh, thing that I think Brett might have been um, sort of suggesting earlier, except I'm not sure. So I, I sort of wanted to come back to this point from earlier sure. um, before moving on too much. And it's um, we sort of talk about states and empires as as their different things. But uh, Brett, you made the point that. Um, states uh as the way that we sort of conceive of them in the modern sense um erupted from these these empires that sort of broadened out their core as as you were saying so i'm but as we were describing the the sort of qualities of empire i was i was reminded of and i'm sure you're very familiar with the concept of internal colonialism the sort of uh modern idea that this this differentiation between this exploitation of of a sort of underclass or a periphery class uh, is happens within modern states uh, pretty regularly. So I'm sort of wondering if you would agree with the idea that a, is is a state just an empire in modern clothing? Hmm. Um. It's a state just an empire in modern clothing. I mean, that's just, huh? Um. I mean, I think obviously you do get 
um, as I as I've encountered the the idea of internal colonialism, it's it's generally region based, right? It's a question of differential development of regions as the state tends to prefer, you know, sub to, to to plow resources into some regions over others. And so, you know, if you happen to live in in West Virginia, the state may not care very much about you, at least at the federal level, um, or at least it didn't for a long time. Um, and I think to some degree, you know, this is just saying the state is in the business of allocating scarce resources, and it is impossible to allocate those resources evenly in some cases. But in other cases, right, it is it is the creation of non-ethnic interest groups within the state that, yeah, I think you can you can create a situation as as I said, the the core of an empire can be ethnically defined or it can be defined via status. Um, one of the striking things that happens in the Roman Empire, as I said, they extend citizenship across the whole empire. And then because I guess, you know, legal equality is just not something the Romans are interested in doing, you know, citizen versus non-citizen had been this key legal distinction up until this point. You extend citizenship over the whole empire, and immediately uh, new categories emerge, the honestiores and humiliores. Um, which is just to say, like the rich and well connected and everyone else. And they right. immediately begin to acquire distinct legal rights uh, where, you know, men who were honestiores, um, you know, they, they were the ones that got the benefit of like jury trials and legal due process. And like the humiliores were, you know, subject to summary judgment by a local governor. Um, and so you get this you get this distinction where a system of hierarchy has to reassert itself. Um, you know, human beings, we have not yet figured out how to make complex societies work without hierarchy. And so, you know, hierarchy of some form is gonna is gonna form itself inside of our states, whether we want it to or not. I think you end up in a question of of definitions and perhaps an unhelpful one. And trying mm-hmm. to figure out is that an empire or not, um, I suppose it would it would come down to the question of do the people in it perceive it as one? Yeah, well, it's interesting. Also, like in a in a video game sense, we have to sort of um, obviously put things into binary categories and um, try and and decide like, well, this is a game about empire, so it has to include A, B, and C. Um, uh, I guess it would be interesting if if Victoria's three succeeds in kind of uh, blurring or making a, a lot of that a lot more interesting. If it's if it's able to create mechanics that make those emerge rather than than um, being sort of on, on fixed paths like uh, like you blog about. Yeah, and and you know, there's there the way those mechanics sort of interact would sort of let you create the the conditions that you know we've kind of laid out for like how an empire works even within maybe something as small as a city state if you have a larger ethnicity that doesn't have rights and that is producing a lot of goods for very low wages and then you have another ethnicity that is you know bankers and capitalists and they're they're just you know collecting the proceeds from that um, you could have almost like a tall micro empire in a small state, at least by the the strict definition of empire. It sounds like um, I don't know if any anything like that necessarily existed historically, with the exception of maybe people who had a very small core in Europe that were 
going out and and getting stuff from the rest of the world, but uh, I could be wrong there. I mean, you've essentially described Sparta, haven't you? <laughs> um, you have you have in theory nine thousand citizen households, in practice fewer than that, that dominate a population of perhaps several hundred thousand hereditary enslaved helots. Um, the helots are not. Well, most of the Helots are ethnically distinct from the Spartans because they're Mycenaeans, but some of them aren't. Um, but in any event, it's a it's a hereditary status, and so you have this sort of yeah micro system of uh, horrific oppression. Um, you know, Sparta is quite frankly the least free society I have ever studied, and people can go to the blog and read the what seven part discussion of why you should not think Sparta is as cool as you probably do. But I thought um, they were defending democracy from the Persians. Wasn't that? No. They were not doing that, no. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. The other thing that uh, I think is is sort of come a long way from earlier strategy games uh, where Empire was basically, I go in and, you know, I'll take over your town center or I'll take over your capital and now your country is part of my country, um, is how newer games have started to model, uh, to some degree, soft power and like just different varying uh, degrees of authority. And I, this is obviously going to be a pretty paradox heavy show, but I think the best example of this, of of a fairly recent game might be EU4, uh, where they started off with, um, I th I don't even think they had colonial nations in 1.0. I think it was just no. you put down colonies, and now they have colonial nations that have several different ways you can govern them. They have trade companies. They have you know multiple different kinds of vassals, um, and. Uh, at least from my understanding, this, I think, is is quite a bit more accurate to how empires typically work. Is that uh, is that uh, accurate? Yeah, empires, by their nature, tend to be complex, and they tend to interact with different subject peoples differently. And so some areas you might engage in settler colonialism and, you know, be moving in large numbers of of the dominant ethnicity to physically displace people. And in other areas, you're looking for trade concessions. And then, of course, if you want to think about empire in EU4, you have to also add um, vassals and protectorates, which are a really common part of, of empire as well, that maybe you don't want to rule a given area directly. Maybe it's too difficult to rule directly. The terrain is difficult. The people are feisty and what have you. So you support a local ruler that does that does that job for you? And this is certainly something um, that you see quite a lot of where large empires will have little satellite client kingdoms around their frontiers um, in, in useful places. Um, and so, so empires tend to be complex things because, of course, they are, they, they're sort of super hierarchies in their nature. And people can be in different places in those different hierarchies. Um, and EU4 also, I suppose, seeks to model this in part through, through the, the autonomy feature, right? That some regions can be granted higher autonomy to control unrest, you know, representing areas that are, you know, technically controlled by your empire, but perhaps a little more peripheral. And that, that complexity is, is nice. It's a nice break from like 
you know, a game like Civilization where like, I don't know, my musketeer entered your city, therefore it changed to my color. And now for some reason gets all of my cultural bonuses, even <laughs> though uh, none of my people live there. Like I just have to put up with a few turns of unrest and then it, it's just my city now. Um, yeah. I think- I, I, sorry. I, I was just gonna, gonna in, mention that it, it does seem like the games that, um, uh, sort of decide that they're going to be a game about empires because, uh, it brings that like interplay between, um, sort of core and periphery and, and, and a dominant group uh, versus another. It brings that so, uh, much to the fore that they're kind of forced to um at least you know I, I think the games that do it well right they're kind of forced to depict and grapple with and and um uh deal with the fact that you've got cultures and you've got different people and they're within this large thing whereas uh it's very easy sort of to just sort of wave your hand about a state it's sort of like um you th- throwing a cloth over the whole thing, right? You're, you're coloring the map. It's okay. There aren't people. Don't worry about it. Um, there's just a big thing and there's like a, a combat icon for a while and then you're great. Yeah. If I can continue to relentlessly self plug, one of the things I have written <laughs> on the blog is why there are no empires in age of empires. Just to point out that like the game mechanics of age of empires don't support actually building an empire because you're just wiping another group of people out like age of empires doesn't have any empires it has fanatically genocidal nation states Um, well they have they have a completely different color of clothing on i mean they can't be allowed to exist Uh uh-huh exactly they say (laughs) wololo slightly differently um and and therefore you must you must go after them it's it's more like volala in the uh the blue dialect yeah 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 Uh, sorry, I, I, I you you can uh, continue right there. Oh no, I was just gonna say that. I mean, I agree that you've got you've got a handful of of strategy games out there that really try and address this and try and do something with this and express the complexity. But then you have a bunch that have just like I don't know, subtlety is for cowards. They just sort of abandon the complexity. Um, I've been playing a lot of um, Total War Warhammer Three lately, mm-hmm. and right, you're like your, you know, Cathay or Kislev or whatever, like a, you know, ethnically human state, and you conquer like a Skaven underhive, and it just turns into one of your cities. And I'm always looking at like, who lives there? Yeah. Did I uh-huh. move in? Did I move in a bunch of Kislevites? <laughs> Am I administering a Skaven hive? Like, what poor bastard Kislev noble has the job of administering a Skaven underhive? Like, <laughs> All right, guys, we've got to do a census. Like, well, it changes every ten minutes. Yeah. So, um, just post a garrison. It's just like whatever. Just pay your taxes. What I don't, we don't care what you're getting up to down there. Um, I mean, that would be a really imperial thing to do, but that would be an awesome thing to model, where you would, where you could then potentially write. If this really worked like an empire, you could then recruit Skaven units from your subject Skaven underhive. This is something that empires do all the time is that one of the advantages of controlling multiple cultures is that because different cultures have different, obviously different values, different ways of life, that often lends itself to different styles of fighting. And so if you're, if you're the Romans, right, the Romans are really good at heavy infantry. Um, that's what their culture values. And Roman cavalry is hot garbage. 
Um, so if you're the Romans, right, well, Numidia is a client kingdom in your empire. They are really good at cavalry fighting, so you recruit them. Um, you know, um, Crete um, tends to produce really good archers. That's valued in their culture, so you recruit them, and you end up with an army that theoretically sort of has the best of all of the things. Um, interestingly, uh, uh, Total War Warhammer 3 is kind of sort of introduced that in that yeah. if you ally with people, you can get their units, which is neat, but it really should also be possible to do that via conquest. That is traditionally how it was done. Um, and I mean, let's be honest, a, a Kislevite army with some Skaven artillery would be wild. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting that. I mean, if they were to add like maybe a building chain where if you capture the capital of uh, a different race, you know, you can maybe choose to build a structure that lets you recruit some of their units. Um, you know, I can see balance wise why like they've limited that allied recruitment to like four units per army, because I think if you got to a point where anybody could just conquer the whole map and then recruit as many of whatever type of like units of whatever people they have taken over at that point, like the distinctiveness of the factions might be lost a little bit on just like trying to build the best possible, you know, mixed uh, Imperial army. But uh, I think playing more with that is something that could be really interesting. Um, well, sure. And you could balance that out with mechanics like unit cohesion or, yeah, more, yeah. you know, um, something more apt to be, uh, uh, disrupted in some way uh, like that. Yeah, I, I that that would be really interesting. Yeah, I mean, I guess you have, you know, Skaven units aren't going to benefit from a Kislevite general's abilities because they're specific to Kislev units. So then maybe you could add, okay, this this unit now or this army now generates corruption because they have Skaven doing Skaven things in it, or you know, you get a morale bonus for keeping your army all human or something like that but uh, yeah well and historically that was you know <clears throat> that could be that could be a problem the seleucid army was famous for in in the ancient world for having you know because it controlled pretty much the whole old core of the of the achaemenid persian empire that it would show up with a you know the the heavy infantry core was greek and macedonian but then you'd have specialist fighters from all over the empire um and it's really striking that the seleucids can never quite get these fellows to fight as hard and as effectively as they will fight for themselves like the you get all of these various kinds of light infantry and missile troops from all over the empire that the seleucids will bring to a fight and these guys are tough fighters when they control their own country um but in a seleucid army they fold fast um, when pressed because because they don't care it's not their state they're not full members of it they're not motivated by it like why why die for this this pardon my language this greek asshole um <laughs> you know no if things look like they're not going well you know you leg it um and that that contributes to the catastrophic seleucid defeated uh, against the romans at magnesia where the wings of the one of the wings of the seleucid army just is is pressed and just falls apart just completely disintegrates yeah, it's it's interesting that there's there this this ally mechanic and this allied recruitment mechanic are kind of 
introducing sort of what I was talking about with like trade companies and, and uh, colonial nations in EU4, where they're trying to model different stages of soft power, sort of like they're giving you a reason to maybe keep this enclave of, of dwarfs or whatever around instead of just, you know, coloring the whole map, um, which I think is is something that strategy games are moving towards that I really like. It creates kind of these more interesting layered patchworks of of uh, authority and control that I think ends up being a lot more fun and rewarding to interact with than uh, just a big blanket across the whole world uh, that has your name on it. And uh, it, you know, it, we already touched on a little bit that that's, it's kind of more accurate uh, to how empires tend to work uh, as well. Um, are there any other games either of you have played that, that you feel like um, have interesting sort of soft power or, you know, multiple systems within the same empire sort of mechanics i mean the one that i'm just because we're just i guess it's all paradox all the time um <laughs> i mean this is something that the latest crusader kings 3 expansion moved more decisively towards that you know ethnicities in your in your multi-ethnic kingdom don't now just sort of poof out of existence over the next 50 years they tend to stick around and they tend to be they tend to be significant, and there are systems to make it more possible if you want to run a multi ethnic empire. I mean, my latest CK three game is I always play every expansion is the Byzantines first, and um, and it's been really interesting to have um, you know your sections of your empire that you know end up where even the aristoc the aristocracy is quote unquote gone local. And so, you know, you're dealing with, you know, the, the ruling class of my empire includes, sure, Greeks, but also, you know, um, a, a whole host of other languages and ethnicities. And you have to, you know, plan for that. Do you make it a habit of, of training all the members of your family to speak multiple languages? And if so, which ones? Which, you know, is, is reminiscent of the fact that, right, this is an empire where you used to have to always know Greek and Latin. Um, because you never know who you're going to need to talk to. Um, and I thought that was really, that was really interesting. Um, it is striking, but probably appropriately correct that you, you can make a multi-ethnic kingdom work, but you really can't make a multi-religious kingdom work, which I mean, for the period, yeah, multi-religious kingdoms were hard. Yeah. Yeah. There is like a little bit of flexibility in that. Like if you design a heresy, that is specifically set up to be really tolerant or if you're playing out in the east or like uh, like India where no one really cares like just again whatever just pay your taxes um yeah it's it is very interesting the way that you can uh get those cultures up to an acceptance level where they almost just behave like a primary culture um and that some are like some are designed they'll have like a trait that makes them very very hard to assimilate and then the opposite is also true, like uh, the the Norse and some of the the like Turkic and Mongolic cultures have a trait that makes them uh, more easy to like hybridize or assimilate into the local culture. Um, I still wish they had some way to model model minorities, because uh, if you look at you know, I, I started a game the other day in Hungary in 1066, and it's pretty much 
Hungarian across the board, which I think kind of does a disservice to like the actual linguistic and ethnic diversity that existed in some of these areas that you can still only have one culture per province, uh, which I, you know, a pop system seems to be the, the only real way to get around that. Um, yeah, I'd love to see also a system for modeling um, ethnic and religious enclaves. Um, I yeah. mean, the most obvious one would be would be Jewish communities throughout the throughout the sort of broader Mediterranean world, right? Mm-hmm. We're a huge factor. This was sort of kind of modeled a little bit in CK two, and I mean, I'd love to see it, um, you know, come back as something because this is something in the era, and it often posed, um, right, complex choices for local rulers because. As a ruler, it was typically advantageous to have a Jewish community in your um, in in your realm. It provided, you know, a lot of of opportunities for you as a, as a ruler, economic activity, etc. Um, on the flip side, right? Obviously, Jewish communities were often exposed to fairly horrific violence, um, and you see, for instance, in the early stages of the First Crusade. Um, you know, fired up crusaders who haven't yet left Europe attacking local Jewish communities. And strikingly, in some cases, the local rulers let it happen. In other cases, the local rulers fight the crusade to protect their lo- their little Jewish communities, um, you know, alongside of the members of those communities, uh, albeit often without much success, uh, because, you know, they saw the advantages of these communities and wanted to protect them, right? There's a complexity there of interactions with, you know, what is, again, essentially a minority group that I love to see the game attempt to model, though obviously, um, you know, they would need to be very careful in in how they modeled it, not to sort of stray off the rails. Yeah, Mike, is, is Pops just the solution to everything, or can you think of I any think other Pops. way... <laughs> yeah no yeah I, put please put pops in everything always yeah yep that's yep, my pops. stance um well there is yeah. i guess there is sort of a point that you have to decide what your game is about and you know not everything can model everything down to the lowest level of abstraction i think we've sort of discussed the multiple nope, level no nope. pops and everything pops okay. and first person shooters uh yeah thanks for <laughs> listening to uh no um we, we've sort of talked about the varying levels of of how you model this particular part of building an empire you have sort of what i would call you know the the highest level of abstraction which would be something like a total war or a civ where it's like i conquered a city uh there's unrest in the city why is there unrest well because there was a regime change within the last couple of turns and when people forget about that they'll be happy again um you move up to something like an EU4 where uh, I just conquered this area. People are unhappy. Uh, why? Because I haven't been able to like extend my government administration out there yet. That's sort of, I guess, what the coring button is supposed to represent. CK2 or CK3, I guess, sort of has a similar mechanic where you're actually sending your marshal out into the countryside to raise the control level by rounding up bands of malcontents or whatever he's doing out there. Um, and then, you know, a game like Victoria or Imperator, which is the lowest level of abstraction, where all of these people have specific needs and are under varying levels of legal discrimination, and their unrest is basically, is directly based on whether their needs are being met and what legal discrimination they're facing. 
Um, what I'm curious is, do you, either of you have any thoughts on how those higher level abstraction games could do a better job of modeling the challenges of empires without having to go down to the super low level of abstraction? Is there sort of an elegant um, sort of historically resonant solution in here that wouldn't like, oh, just make Civ into Victoria and then you're done? I think from a systems perspective, in the end, uh, you're sort of the things that I can think of sort of come down to the equivalent of pops anyway. Right. Because I feel like you've got to, um, based on some of the things that we've been talking about, um, you, you have to include the thinking about the, the mix of people and the, the mix of classes that are, uh, that are within the, the geography that you're playing in. So, if it's not pops, you know, at least there has to be some percentages and and things like that of saying, you know, there's these internal pressures um, due to the the fact that this isn't a homogenous state. That's that's what I would think anyway. I think that's right. I come at the question from a kind of weird, different direction, which is, you know, I, I think I think Lynn, as you said earlier, like games have to be about something. Um, right, they have to kind of pick what they're going to do. What I find striking is that when you look at the sort of strategy games on offer, there are a lot of strategy games about empire building. There are very few strategy games about decolonizing um, or about even preventing an empire from being built on your head. Like technically, mm -hmm. I suppose you can play EU4 tall, but in practice, most games of EU4, yes, you start as a small endangered country, and at some point you eventually become a big powerful empire that is preying on your neighbors. That is the that is the most common game arc is that you end up as a big fancy empire and the game is sort of meant to incentivize that. And I'm sometimes kind of surprised that, you know, uh, a lot of our popular culture is sort of very right. It's like Star, -Z, Star Wars Z, hooray for the Rebel Alliance. And yet you don't have a lot of Be the Rebel Alliance strategy games that are not explicitly set in the Star Wars universe. And, um, you know, hashtag make Empire of War 2. Um, <laughs> but, um, uh, but it's just really striking to me that, you know, you have all of these war games. How many of them model insurgency and make you the insurgent? Yeah. Um, how many of them... Um, model a war of national liberation where where you are the colonized population. When I was thinking about about doing this, it struck me that the last game that I've played that models a kind of guerrilla style of warfare was High Fleet. But High Fleet explicitly casts you as the empire. You're just isolated from your main forces and therefore compelled to engage in a sort of guerrilla war. But but what a missed opportunity to actually make you the underdog um, and to, to make you the, 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 the colonized population that is, that is fighting back. I, I would like to see more strategy games tackle the question um, from the perspective of the, the people on the business end of empire rather than from the perspective of, of the empire, empire itself. And some other game genres do this to a degree. Um, 
there are a number of RPGs that tackle this. The one that's jumping into my mind is, is Pillars of Eternity to Deadfire. Does, I think, an actually really interesting job of thinking about colonialism in an RPG context. But strategy games haven't tackled that from that direction, and they should. Or at least they haven't done it much, and they should. Yeah, bringing in other genres uh, also in, in recent games really makes me think of um, Suzerain, which yeah. is just incredible. And um, the there's another aspect of of sort of negative slides of of uh, fascism in that case, um, where um, th- that lets you really get into the internal struggles of of the politics of the of the nation there and it makes me think in terms of of thinking about empires there's also not a lot of depictions of let's say the political struggles inside of a uh, a state or other kind of political unit where uh there's this push towards imperialism and what are because I think it's really interesting historically, at least the the little that I know of um, what are the pressures that caused and the ideas and the uh, opportunities that that caused places to become massive empires and to start engaging in massive amounts of colonialism. But we don't really ever co- sort of grapple with um, what's going on there. Is that inevitable in in some cases? Yeah, I mean, uh, I can tell you the sort of international relations theory literature here. Um, you're going to get your your Kenneth Waltz, Waltz theories of interstate anarchy, which suggests that all states are empires in waiting um, because that's how conditions of interstate anarchy work. And and so the, the answer is essentially the question is not will but ability, um, that mm. any state would do imperialism if it, if it could. Um, I think you have to... You have to set against that um, uh, military historian Azar Ghat has essentially argued that was true until the Industrial Revolution when war became so incredibly destructive that empire building isn't worth it. Um, you will lose more tanks stuck in the Ukrainian mud than you will gain. Um, sorry, I had to. Um, <laughs> we can, but, we can um, have a little bit as a treat, yeah. But yeah. Yeah, but I mean, you're sort of watching the theory play out where he's like, yeah, I know in an industrial and especially post-nuclear world, uh, it's just not worth it to engage in that kind of imperialism because the cost of the military activity will be greater than the economic gain to the core of obtaining this compared to what you could obtain by, by trade, um, by you know, cooperative, friendly interaction. Um, but but in, the, in the world of agriculture, um, you know the 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 general assumption here is is yeah because land is economic value um, that that all states are sort of driven towards towards empire to one degree or another um, at least within their own local areas. Yeah, um, yeah, Mike. It's funny you brought up suzerain because I was actually going to bring up the exact same thing. Um, both in in terms of a a game that sort of puts you in the position where you are on uh, sort of the horns of a larger imperial power, but also, uh, you know, um, I'm blanking on the name of the country for some reason uh, that you you are the leader of in that game. Me too. Um, (laughs) But 
that you are an empire because you have, you know, the bluish minority, uh, you know, in, in the West that uh, are very much their their own ethnicity. And it would be very interesting to have more games that let you play as something like a united front of an ethnic minority at a subnational level, um, which, you know, Crusader Kings uh, Swordland. That's it. Thank you. Um, uh Crusader Kings is like one of the only games I know that actually lets you do that, because when you get conquered, your story isn't necessarily over. You might just now be a vassal of a king who has a different culture and religion than you. And then, you know, they can go on to revoke your titles, but you still have a chance. Um, uh, Brad, I'm curious, do you know, uh, do you know, Dr. Daniel Cobb? I just noticed he's from he's teaches at the same university you're at. I, I do not. OK, um. He has a really good I'm I'm a fan of uh, the great courses and he has a great lecture series on there. Um, not a sponsor unless you want to be on the native, <laughs> the native peoples of North America. And sort of the conclusion he comes to at the end of that lecture series is that we should stop talking about conquered people in terms of, you know, when they lost their top level political sovereignty, their story was over uh, because that's generally not how it actually works you know we everything in our minds we tend to dissolve it underneath this colored blob of you know national sovereignty um but i would love to see more games that play more with the idea that okay just because we were conquered this doesn't mean our story is over this doesn't mean that we can't still uh achieve you know better lives for our people and more you know political recognition and maybe someday have our own state um you know the kurds i think are an example of a modern day people who are trying to do that um there's there's lots of examples throughout history of that um and i don't i don't really know of a strategy game that that presents that necessarily in a satisfying way from the the perspective of the conquered people so i would i'd love to see more of that right i mean in, inevitably it ends up being a failure state when that happens, right? Right. That means you've run your Austria-Hungary game very poorly in Victoria too, and your your nationalities are are splintering off. Um, and I think you could also, in that approach, right, you have to balance, you know, if you were if you were playing as a leader of a minority group like that, you also have to make decisions like, do I agitate for our own state, or do we choose to invest in this state? Um, you know, again, we're trying to keep um, uh, uh, current events to to a minimum, right? But I was really struck, um, you know, last week. I think it was last week. the The UN ambassador from Kenya um, yes. gave what I thought was a remarkable speech, where he, you know he made he made the point like every African country has bullshit borders that were drawn by uh, that were drawn in 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 um, you know Paris or London or what have you. Um, and, you know, as a result, you have to make that decision. Is it worth the blood and the pain to redraw the borders so that it maps linguistic and ethnic communities? Or do you just have to learn to live together in the sort of lines that you have, because that is the route to greatest human flourishing. And I think that like that raises really interesting questions that I think, uh, you know, strategy games could could do interesting things with because you'd have to think about, you know, the strategy of it, the trade-offs um, that is just really not engaged with because you invariably play 
as the borders, and therefore the borders are definitely right. Um, mm-hmm. in in a game like in a game like Victoria. Yeah, I thought that was yeah. a, an amazing speech, and and the idea that you could have a game where the the idea is something more like what um you know the the uh, I think it's Council for African Unity is the name of the organization is trying to do where it's it's really just building broader interstate cooperation and closer economic ties, closer infrastructural ties across borders. There are some like minimal modeling of that in the sense that like, oh, if I'm playing civilization and I have a lot of trade with the person right across my borders, it's probably going to be more costly for me to go to war with them than to just collect the benefits of trade but it would be very interesting to see a strategy game that is based around that you're on this continent uh where the borders don't make any sense and your goal is to sort of transcend that problem rather than try to just redraw the map yeah something i i've thought for a long time might um fit with the the pop system is uh some way of representing competing um allegiances um in this same kind of way that that we were just talking about right like uh not everybody actually believes in the same ideas of of what their nation is or or what their uh sort of primary sovereignty falls under um and i i think that is a really interesting direction that that um could really be mined for some interesting simulation I don't know. At some point, it becomes so complex that I don't know how you build a game around it. But uh, Paradox has done some pretty good stuff so far. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, and well, you, I, I just gonna say you've, you know, I think you have seen those themes tackled in in other genres. I go back to my to my Pillars of Eternity example, but one of the things I love the hell out of for Deadfire is that. It presents the 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 native population, the what is it, Juana, as like they're complex with a complex class system and caste system, and and while it, the game is really clear that imperialism is bad, it's also willing to acknowledge that for some of the rungs on that ladder, uh, moving out the old system and replacing it with an imperial government would be good for some of those people. That it would have complex effects through this society, um, even though you know on the whole it would be bad um and and that's something i think that would be tricky to model in a strategy game but but fascinating i i don't know you know paradox needs to get on that (laughs) yeah yeah for sure um i guess to kind of wrap us up for uh for this topic um brad a lot of your blogs are are sort of geared toward uh or they they have they have an aspect of them that's geared toward educators so I'm curious on on the topic of how empires work and how imperialism works. If you're an average Total War player or Civ player or Paradox player, uh, you know, going out and and building your grand empire, uh, what what can you learn about how the how this these forces work historically, and what maybe uh, should you do some looking into outside of the game because it's not modeled that well. Yeah, I mean, I think you're gonna get you're gonna get more out of uh, again out of the paradox titles. I think you can actually get a fair bit of thinking about how empires work and what motivates them from 
um, you know, a Hearts of Iron, Victoria, EU4. I think for someone who's looking to sort of further reading, um, I think probably a good place to start probably is Azargat's War in Human Civilization. Um, you know, he starts with the sort of very basic questions of why do humans go to war? Um, why do we do this stupid thing that we do? Um, what motivates it and and builds up through the emergence of the state, the emergence of large agrarian empires, and talks about what is motivating the formation of these structures, um, and then how does the you know violent formation of these structures in turn reshape the underlying societies? Um, it it may recast sort of your thinking of you know the map painting you're doing in in Total Warhammer. Um, as you know, I don't know, glorious, glorious Kislev. <laughs> Did you have any final thoughts, Mike? Um, just that I wish more companies and and studios and and uh, devs would uh, enter into this whole space because um, I, you know, Paradox does a lot of really interesting things, and there's there's way more that can be done. So. I'm looking yeah, forward to that I don't, someday. I don't know if either of you have seen any of the uh the first couple dev diaries for Grey Eminence. Um, but it, no. it's some EU4, at least some of the people working on it are EU4 modders who did uh the MEIOU and Taxes mod, which actually adds a more uh in-depth population system to EU4. Uh and uh it's very paradox adjacent, um, but it is from like a smaller team and they're self-funded. Uh, but it looks like they're doing some interesting stuff. I totally agree that that Paradox uh, uh, should have more competition, uh, sort of at their at their league in terms of I'm saying level of abstraction. I'm not saying what they're doing is objectively better as a video game. Um, uh, well, and and since we're um, <laughs> on the topic, we haven't done a show on it yet. But uh, Star Dynasties is playing in the same space as Crusader Kings, and it's really interesting. Yeah, and, I still and, uh, need to find we can... time to check that out. I have time now. I just I just need to install it. Um, yeah, whereas I I don't have time. I have Elden Ring. Yeah, well, that's the thing. <laughs> that's been eating up all of the time that I do have at the moment. Um, yeah. Uh, we we sort of plugged it at the top of the show, but before we go, Brett, do you want to uh, let people know where to go find the stuff that you write? Yeah. Um. So again, you can find um my blog, a collection of unmitigated pedantry, at acoup.blog. Um. You can also find me on Twitter. I am at Brett Devereaux. So it's nice and easy. It's one T in Brett. Um. Uh, I spell my name weird, and um, put pops in everything. <laughs> I can agree with that. Uh, I can agree with put pops and everything. Um, yeah. Well, uh, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Um, I, I would hope it won't be the last time for those of you listening out there. I would love to hear uh, what you guys would like to hear, uh, you know, uh, sort of a more a perspective of somebody who has an academic background, but also a strong background in actually playing and thinking about these games regularly, which is something that uh, seems kind of hard to come by. I mean, we have Troy, but he works at Paradox, so he's not allowed to talk about it. So that doesn't really help us that much. Um, so, yeah, let us know. Well, we're uh, good until they hire Brett. Yeah, exactly. And uh, then we need to find someone else. Uh, so... <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah let us know at 3ma on twitter uh what other topics do you think would would be really interesting to uh to have this kind of a chat about in the future 
Uh, we have some other ideas, but uh, I'd like to hear from you guys as well. Um, uh, this episode was produced by me. Uh, Three Moves Ahead is hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. Uh, you can go check us out there at idlethumbs.net slash 3MA. And we are funded uh, by the generous support of listeners just like you on patreon.com slash 3MA, where you can get cool perks like access to our Discord server. Um, you can also just give us a dollar if you want. I mean, that's honestly how a lot of this stuff works these days is just a lot of people who are willing to chip in a dollar. So if you thought, uh, you know, this month, the entertainment I got out of Three Moves Ahead podcast was worth a dollar, uh, we'd appreciate if you just, you know, go go on over there and uh, and click that one dollar level because that's how we are able to keep doing what we are doing. Um, uh We'll be back next week with another great episode. So until then, uh, for Mike and for Brett, this is Len saying goodnight.